The Future Works, a podcast for workforce professionals hosted by me, Melinda Mack. If you asked me five years ago if I thought my kitchen table would be my office, I would have laughed. I'm not sure about you, but I've actually become one of those people who enjoys working remotely. I don't have to travel as much. I could throw a load of laundry in during lunch. There's endless snacks. Um, and honestly, my team can gather virtually from anywhere across the state. It's cheaper. It seems to be more efficient, more effective. I feel like I can fit a lot more into the day and I'm not spending as much time in my car. But I also know I'm lucky. You know, during the pandemic, a lot of people were not given this opportunity. And I have a lot of family and friends who don't get to work from their kitchen and table. They work in healthcare or education. They have to go in because they're providing essential services. But considering how much the pandemic has affected our workplaces, I was excited to see that last month the Rockefeller Institute of Government published a newer brief called Remote Work During COVID-19, What It Can Tell Us About the Future of Work. So today, I've invited to the Future Works podcast author Liz Farmer to share the most recent data on teleworking across the country and in New York and its potential impact on the future. So whether you're listening from your kitchen table or from your office today, I hope you enjoy today's podcast. today by Liz Farmer from SUNY Rockefeller Institute of Governor Government. Um, Liz, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes, hi, uh, Melinda. It's great to be on. Um, I'm Liz Farmer. I'm a fiscal policy writer and expert and also a fellow at the Rockefeller Institute of Government, um, where I focus on the future of work and the policy implications. And one of the things we're here to talk about today is the fact that we have shifted during the pandemic to this incredible amount of, of teleworking or remote work across the state and across the country. And so I'm really excited to be joined today um, to hear a little bit more about this recent report that you've just put out. Um, why did you sort of decide that this was something you wanted to focus on as part of um, sort of the outgrowth of the pandemic? Yeah, so um, when I first started as a fellow at the Rockefeller Institute, um, and they asked what I wanted to write about, this was like back in December 2019, uh, so in the before times, as we say, <laughs> um, and I have had personal experience, I, I have worked myself um, remotely for years now, um, and at that time, um, I had been doing a hybrid thing at my, my previous my previous job at a magazine. So I was pr pretty interested just naturally in um, the, the remote work life and what that meant in terms of, you know, all kinds of things, right? Transportation, you know, where people are doing it. So um, we did this, you know, policy brief that went out, I want to say in like January, 2020, um, that looked at the landscape of, you know, the, the mobile workforce. And lo and behold, as we all know what happened three or 
three months later, the pandemic was declared and like everybody who could started working remotely and it became a huge, huge thing. So um, since then, I've I've been writing about related things uh, that have to do with remote work, like um, the impact on cities, um, on public transit. And then now that we have um, uh, earlier this year, uh, we kind of reached the two year mark and thought it would be um, a really good idea to to go back and do a review of what's happened with remote work over the last two years, particularly because the U.S. Census started specifically tracking that in its household pulse survey. So we now have like more data, more specific data than we've ever had before. As you shared, there's some of us, like I have worked remote off and on for uh, most of my time at this current occupation, um, this current job, and, and so is my team. And part of this was just by function of the fact that we're a nonprofit and we have staff located in lots of places across New York State, and it just wasn't feasible for us to rent office space in all these different locations. Um, yeah. But really give folks a sense of just how much teleworking increased during the pandemic and and guess sort of where have we sort of leveled out to at this point, you know, in October of 2022? Yeah. So in the first, uh, in the early months of the pandemic, and, and when I'm saying that, they didn't start tracking remote work until August 2020. So like the first few months of, of you know, chaos were not, in terms of remote work, were not documented. But um, starting in August 2020, the household poll survey specifically started asking about um about whether um, someone in the household had worked uh, remotely. And, and so from then uh, we have, uh, and we look at, we look at statewide, but we also look at major cities um, because that has been, especially across cities, that that has been where the majority of people who can and are working from home are doing it. And so um, really when you're looking at the numbers in a state, it's, 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 you could, it's like a proxy for what's going on and wherever their major, you know, urban centers are. So that's why we kind of boiled it down to cities as well. And so what I can say about that is um, in the first, um, sorry, the, in like August 2020, when they first started tracking this, it was around 36% uh, across the 10 largest metropolitan uh, areas. It it rose. Wow, that is, to, that's still rem like remarkable. I would have never thought it would have been that, you know. <laughs> yeah, and that, for your reference, is down from 5.2% uh, on average in 2019. So clearly a huge, huge jump. It went even higher um, on average in the um, early in the months of the Delta wave when, uh, you know, winter 2020, 2021, when, it, when we had we were in like the worst of the um, of, of the of the pandemic in terms of the death rate and um, you know, pre-vaccines and, and just, we all remember how bad that was. Um, and so that was, it was even higher then, but since then, uh, I'd say like post-vaccines, if you're looking at August, 2021, um, it, it's down at about a third. So a little under a third on average, which is still obviously a huge amount. Um, and then just a year late, a whole year later in August, 2022, the last, um, month that we have data for that we the Rockefeller Institute has data for, um, is uh, the average is 29.2%. So there's a lot of like variability in that first year or so of the pandemic. And then we, you really see this evening out of sorts as vaccines became, you know, available and more and more people were vaccinated and, and also, you know, places opened up, people kind of got used to this, whatever it is we're doing right now, you know? Um, and so I'd say, you know, but 
30%-ish um, is, is pretty much the average now. And some places are obviously way below that. Some places are way higher. Yeah, so t- talk a little bit about the variability across the country. Um, you know, in your, I mean, think theoretically, it would be places where the commute was longer or, you know, transportation wasn't great or internet was better. Um, ultimately, sort of what are the differences across the country and are you seeing you know, things skewed differently from urban versus rural? Yeah, um, definitely urban versus rural, just because, um, <clears throat> you know, the percentage of jobs in in any area where um, people can work remotely, it tends to center around uh, people who can work from an office who rely on technology as their main source of of communication. And so that's primarily in in urban areas. So there like um, there very much is this, you know, um, difference between urban and rural areas. We we don't have the data by county, but given that um, when you compare statewide data, versus what's going on in, in its major metro city and how similar they are, um, it's it's a pretty good conclusion to say that, you know, whatever's going on in the urban area is kind of dictating what's going on statewide, but it's obviously going to be very, very different in, in areas where there aren't, where the population is more spread out and where it's more, you know, like manufacturing jobs. Um, also, we can say that because there are some cities, uh, some major metropolitan areas where, um, the, where there are like a high number of manufacturing jobs or other jobs where people are required um, to report in person. Um, looking at, I think one of the ones that actually surprised me um, was, back. Oh, no, you're going to edit this out. <laughs> Got them. One of the areas that really surprised me, um, two areas actually, um, one is Riverside, California, where more than half of the um, uh, working population there we consider as an in-person sector. So those, like I said, manufacturing, um, other things like that, where you, you can't do your job through a computer. <laughs> um, <clears throat> another, and, and with Riverside, California, and I think the reason this surprised me is because it's not that far from Los Angeles where there is a pretty good share of people working remotely, but in Riverside, it's, it's the lowest share in the country right now. Um, just over a quarter of, of households reported telework. And remember I said the average is um, around 30%. Um, and then also in Detroit, Michigan, which actually kind of makes sense if you think about Detroit. Again, more than half of the households there are, um, you know, quote unquote, in-person sectors. And, and they're at 30% right now in terms of, of households that are working remotely. On the other hand, um, or other end, you have places like San Francisco and Washington, D.C., which, as you mentioned, are like terrible in terms of commute, right? I live outside. I used to live right outside the D.C. area, so I can speak to, speak to that personally. Um, also have a high, pretty high number of people who, who used to ride public transit to work. Um, and they have a, a pretty low uh, percentage of people who, um, who are working in person. And both of those are, are like the top two, the top two places where people are still working remotely. They are both at just over half of households are still reporting that they are working remotely. And, and by that, I, I, I mean, 
have reported remote work at some point in the last week or two. So it could be, you know, they're, they're mostly in the office four days a week. And then on the fifth day, they, they work remotely, but it still obviously counts. And it's still a huge change from what, what folks were doing pre pandemic. Yeah, it is interesting to see again, uh, some of the places where you can sort of glean the sectors that again, where you can actually work remote. Um, but I'm hoping that again, that you can sh um, share some more details. So again, I'm thinking about looking at Boston, I'm looking at, um, again, I'm looking at the data here, San Francisco, Seattle, DC, all seem to be places where there's, again, ample tech or biotech. Um, what are some of the, ultimately, the sectors and industries where this is most prevalent? And really, ultimately, who is benefiting from the ability to work from home um, in terms of the types yeah. of people, the types of households? Because um, when you look at the income, the medium household income, none of the none of them are folks who are in poverty for sure yeah yeah absolutely so i'll i'll kind of address that going going backwards and so starting with the income because yes there is a huge difference um between the income level of those who are working from home a lot and those who are not and and it it really breaks down to that higher level so households that earn $100,000 or more annually are basically twice as likely to report working remotely than compared with any other, even the next lowest income bracket, which is not bad, right? 50,000 to 99,000 uh, annually a year. That's not, not low income at all. But that group um, is currently, the uh, 50 to 99,000 is currently around like that 30% point of, of, of uh, remote work. Um, the higher income is, just under 60%. So they have been working remotely quite a bit and they are, that income group is really the one, the one that is driving the numbers. All the other ones that are even lower, so anyone, any household reporting um, less than 50,000 a year uh, is working remotely like a quarter of the time or 10% of the time, really not, not that much. And so yes, income is almost a proxy for determining who can work remotely. And, you know, when you look at, if you break it down by race, um, and you know anything about the socioeconomics in the United States, it unfortunately makes sense. The group that reports working remotely the most, the two groups, uh, Asian, people of Asian descent, and non-Hispanic whites. Uh, blacks and Hispanics are the least likely to report working remotely. Um, looking at, as you said, by, by job type. Now, this this is anecdotal because when we kind of broke down the type of employment, it didn't necessarily say tech. You know, the, the categories that the census provides are not not my favorite. Let's <laughs> see, I wish they would be more specific. But you know, like it, um, you know, financial sector, uh, you know, uh, management, that type of thing. Um, so we can't get down specifically to like technology or you know. Healthcare, that kind of thing, but uh, yeah, those pes those pesky NAICS codes are not very helpful sometimes. <laughs> yes, thank you. Someone from the census who's listening, get on that. <laughs> um, but so, but we can say anecdotally, yes. I mean, we know the, the major sector in San Francisco, for example, is technology, and lo and behold, it is one. It is it along with DC is the you know place where people have been working remotely pretty darn consistently and at a really high rate. Uh, same deal with DC. You know, a lot of that is uh, government and nonprofits and um, 
and those, and then you know, contractors, which also uh, you know you would consider uh, you know tech adjacent, <laughs> and um, you know, so those being the major employers, major industries in D.C. Uh, and especially knowing that nonprofits and governments, particularly at the beginning, were the two were two sectors that were you know high, most likely to have people working remotely. Um, taking all that into consideration, yes, of course, it makes sense that D.C. is is another place where people are working remotely a lot. And as I mentioned, income is a proxy. San Francisco and D.C. have the high of of the group that we're looking at in terms of the metropolitan statistical areas. San Francisco and D.C. are the two places where uh, median household income tops 100,000, uh, and that's median. <laughs> so, yeah, right. It, uh, yeah, so it all makes sense in this kind of sad way, I suppose, uh, that it really, you know, access to remote work is is an equity issue. Absolutely. And we also, I mean, we still feel that, I think, in terms of like the government folks still working from home. Um, just even in our sector, you know, we do a lot of work in terms of advocacy, and most of those meetings are with staffers who are still working from home. Um, and so I think part of the challenge has been like being able to plan, as you you know, um, when is an in-person meeting, when is a virtual meeting. Um, but I think as we we see this, like 30% looks like it's going to be the new norm, like there's going to be long-term impacts just generally on infrastructure and on sort of how organizations form and organize real estate. Um, based on some of the research you've been doing, what are some of those impacts we should be paying attention to and that are going to be sort of the long-term outgrowth of this real seismic shift in many ways to teleworking and to remote work? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest in impacts well, I'm going to say it's a tie because transit, public transit, and then real estate are are still, you know, kind of in upheaval right now, financially, shall we say. Um, just thinking about, you know, the whole model of, of downtown in particular was based on people living outside the city and, and commuting in. And so that means you have all this office space downtown. You have more space out in the suburbs. Uh, you have people who don't want to sit in traffic for an hour and a half. So they take public transit and, and public transit is relying on that revenue to fund, you know, stuff like, you know, uh, maintenance, um, improvements, that kind of thing. And when that model gets halt, essentially halted by more people working remotely, um, you really need to, both, both of those need to, are forced to rethink, you know, where's my revenue stream coming from? What's my new balance? And for real estate, we're already hearing about a lot of, you know, office spaces kind of being uh, people thinking about or going ahead and, and remodeling office space into residential and, and as to encourage more people to live downtown. And then that kind of helps the, the tax issues that downtown is having theoretically when all this, you know, starts really happening in about five or six years, but that still leaves public transit. And um, I think I've more conversations around transit agencies and this idea of, well, how much should we provide, should we consider providing public transit as a public service, and which means like really reduced fares and free fares or free fares for everyone or free fares for low income? Because as we saw in the pandemic, you know, um, and, and again, looking at the data that we have, those who can afford to um, stay, stay home and work and avoid all the health potential health consequences of being exposed to the to the virus, they could do that. 
that it's the low-income population that had to show up for work that, that, and they were the most vulnerable to any, you know, to any side effects and having a, a really, um, oh, I can't think of what I'm trying to say. <laughs> sort of the adverse, they also have the adverse access to health care. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally, yeah. I, that, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's been interesting for sure. Yeah. I also feel like the other piece that, you know, as we're thinking about the shifts in sectors, um, you know, a huge part of, at least in New York State, our economy is um, service sector jobs. So jobs that require in-person, but also more importantly, jobs that really support is, as you shared, those downtown communities. So we're talking about the coffee shops, the restaurants, the retail establishments, Um do you see, do you think we're going to see sort of a long-term change or impact on those data or those numbers when we start to run sort of the establishment level data in a couple of years? Yeah, that's that's a tough one to, to even make an educated guess on um, because it's still so in flux. I mean, I know speaking anecdotally about the D.C. area because I have been there, you know, several times since the, the pandemic took hold. A lot of places have closed. A lot of places have adjusted hours um, or laid off workers. You know, so they've adjusted to the to, to the lower population downtown. But at the same time, you have plans for more um, residential spaces opening up in the city, which then, you know, theoretically could serve those the coffee shops and you know all the other places. So I think it's still really in flux and. What really will, will it will depend on is you know how cities manage their their residential population going forward and you know how what they do about that really you know how they're going to keep people in in the borders so we can get so they can get their ta- that tax revenue. That's super insightful. You know, even in New York City, I had a cousin who recently traveled to the city and asked for restaurant restaurant recommendations, and the three that I suggested were no longer open. And again, it just goes back. This is like I had only been there, you know, six months prior and they were still there. But it's just this this turnover. And then I think this added strain, obviously, of like the the hiring, the fact that folks aren't able to hire to be able to staff full time. But to the challenge you're sort of putting out there, if, you know, folks are adjusting hours and they're sort of trying to figure this stuff out on the fly, it's also tough for workers to figure out can I even get a full schedule um, if I'm signing up to work for this entity or this organization? Which leads me to, I think, my last question, which is really around just from your perspective and not from Rockefeller Institute's perspective, but from your perspective, you know, as organizations that are focused on education, job training and employment, um, how should we really be thinking about adjusting our practices to meet these changing needs? But also, I think the changing expectations of being able to do much, much more remote or uh, virtually. Mm, Yeah, so. I would answer that kind of starting with what the public sector is is doing or what trends are starting to come out of some of the some other research in the public sector, and that is you know rethinking benefits and um, you know so that means not just the ability to to work remotely, um, and I think that really runs the gamut. I think that um, you know what what we're seeing now is a lot of people tend to prefer the hybrid schedule where they work some days at home, some days in the office. I know personally for me when that was when that was my life, I, I, I liked it. Um, I currently work remotely all the time and so my only office mate right now is my husband. <laughs> so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, 
But so public sector is starting to look at this, but there, but it's also starting to look at things like um, student student loan assistance, uh, payment assistance, mm-hmm. child care at work. I mean, do you remember, like in the eighties, child care at work was not an unheard of thing. You know, totally. And that basically went away, and so things like that are actually starting to come back, possibly. So those quality of life benefits, I think that, and this is especially true for the public sector, employers, you know, looking at the trends of, of who's, of millennials and what is it, Generation Z? <laughs> I can't keep track. I don't know. I was recently called a geriatric millennial, so I'm not, I, oh I can't keep God. track. <laughs> oh, I have a feeling that might be what I am. <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, anyone in 20 to 40-ish years old in that age range, they're not staying in their jobs as long as their their parents and maybe older siblings were. The trend has been to not to, I, won't, I don't want to say job hop, but not to necessarily stick it out and, you know, keep lobbying for more money, but to go find something better somewhere else and go do that job. And so employers, yes, retention is important, but I think that employers also really need to consider, you know, making making the uh, the work environment as mental as as healthy as it as it can be both in terms of mental health physical health um office environment all of those things i think are are a lot more uh valuable to to those who are coming up in the workforce and those are the things that kind of engender loyalty i mean money is like i said people can go get more money at another job if they, if they look around long enough, but it's those kind of intangible benefits that I hear a lot of strain. Um, a lot of folks are strained in that, that area, particularly with mental health. Um, and then, you know, so those sorts of things going forward, I think are, will be helpful. As you're sharing sort of this insight, I'm also thinking about as educational providers, needing to sort of in some ways operate like an employer, right? Like I think to your point, the ability to be flexible, the ability to do some of this stuff in a more hybrid manner, um, Mm -hmm. this idea of making sure there's childcare and transportation associated with an education or training program. Um, You know, I'm going to keep thinking we've, we've been able to do so much. I mean, geez, like you can testify before Congress remotely, you can, you know, do all of your banking remotely. Like you should probably be able to take a math class remotely. Right. Um, and so I think that there's still some work for, for us to do in terms of really thinking about how we adjust to the changing needs, but also uh, recognition that there's going to be sort of a, adaptability more hopefully more of an adaptability of employers to allow folks to participate in education and training remotely potentially on their their lunch hour right and so i think there's lots yeah. of there's lots of room for improvement in terms of our sector as well um, as well as employers and sort of thinking about these changing dynamics but also the sort of digital literacy folks are going to need to have going into many of these occupations because you know maybe you are shifting from a retail environment and going to to work in an office environment, but that office environment is two days in the office, three days remote, and you're going to need to know how to operate Zoom. You're going to need to know how to operate the 700 other 
telework uh, sites that we never used prior to the pandemic, right? Uh, yeah, but all yeah. in some ways consider ourselves to be these like mini experts in how to do some of this stuff now. So it's again, it's just interesting to think that this is not going away. Um, and there's really something that we should really be thinking about in terms of embedding this into our practices um, around onboarding employees and thinking differently about how we educate and train folks. Yeah, I 100% agree. And and but also really kind of thinking about what you said earlier about nonprofits and how they, you know, can be scattered, how employees can be scattered across the state or even the country. And it's just working remotely conducive to that. I have a couple of friends in a very similar situation. Uh, but getting back to that kind of mental health aspect of it, that teamwork, um, there is something, there's a lot to be said for that in-person time, you know, um, I've, I've had friends who started jobs and ended jobs and never like physically been in the same room as the rest of their team. And, and there's like a sense of detachment with that, right? But creating that sense of unity, of you know, loyalty to some extent of, of uh, teamwork, there is an importance in terms of physically being together, not all the time, but, uh, you know, quarterly meetings, you know, that kind of thing. And I think employers are, are trying to figure out what the best balance is um, to you know, have happy and productive employees, but also to be able to function well. Well, Liz Farmer, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and I'm guessing we'll probably have you back a year from now after a new set of data comes out, we can sort of see where we've landed, <laughs> but I really appreciate this time and for doing this remotely. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. You too. Did you like what you listened to? You can download previous episodes at our website, niatep.org or on Apple or Spotify.